Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Today's episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Hover.com. If you have your domain with somebody else, now is the time to transfer it to Hover, who are better, because you'll get a 40% discount off of the next year of your domain registration. Go to Hover.com slash transfer my domain right now. Katie Toth, Halifax-based freelance journalist. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Uh, people can find you in Vice, the Halifax Examiner, and uh, right here on Canada Land. And you uh, used to report for the Village Voice. We are going to talk today about a struggling Toronto couple's noble quest to convert affordable housing into a $2 million flip. And before that, we are going to talk about political coverage in the light of a couple of recent provincial races and this uh, Andrew Shear thing and whether or not we have political coverage in this country. Sheer terror. Sheer curtains. Excellent. <laughs> Trademark. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Kate Waters, Raleigh Hughes, Ben McDonald, Anne Cavanaugh, Lauren Jane McGlynn, Zoe Maurice, Ashley Redden, and Logan Cooper. Logan, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because Canadian corporate media is seriously ill, and Canada Land might be the only cure we have left. This episode is also brought to you by Hover.com. Listen, do you have any domain names? Do you have a website that's operational? Do you have any domain names that you're parking for a future project? If you have them and they're not with Hover, then you likely deal with registration once every year or two and then forget about it. And in between, 
the other domain providers out there hit you up for upgrades, try to sell you other products, try to get you to pay for things like who is privacy so that people can't figure out your like name, address, and phone number based on your domain that you've registered. It's annoying to work with the other companies. They're often not pleasant companies to deal with. That is what Hover exists as an antidote to. They simply and cleanly and fairly deal with domains and email, and they want your business. They want you to transfer your domain and not wait until a year from now when your domain comes up. They want you to transfer now. And they're offering an incredible incentive for you to do so. If you have domains anywhere, transfer them to Hover right now. You get to keep all of the existing time that you have left on your domain that you paid some other company, and then Hover will add another year to it at a 40% discount. They are making it very cheap and easy to make the right decision and transfer your domains. Go to hover.com slash transfer my domain right now. It'll only take a minute and it will save you headaches and likely money in the future. Good evening. Former Speaker of the House Andrew Scheer pulled off a major political upset tonight. Coming from behind... Andrew Scheer. (laughs) Andrew who? Not quite, but there were echoes of Joe who, with a young surprise winner from the prairies... Catherine Cullen is on the convention floor. Catherine, this whole evening certainly was a surprise. So, Katie, who is Andrew Scheer? When I saw photos of Andrew Scheer up after the story started popping up of him being elected, I thought he was Brad Trost because the photos of them both look so similar. They are literally the same person. There was this like rush to explain who is this guy who is now, I guess, the most likely candidate to be the next prime minister. Didn't Toronto Star ask like Andrew who? (laughs) Andrew who was their headline. And there were journalists saying like, oh my God, he was the speaker of the House of Commons. Come on, people. But I think that the star, in trying to reflect what their readers are asking, got the headline right. What I want to know is, did the media fall down in properly vetting the candidates? And I ask this because within hours of him winning and surprising everybody in this race where we were so concerned with O'Leary and Leach and uh, maybe charmed Michael, by Michael Chong, I will admit, Andrew Scheer did not even pass my attention. And then Sean Craig, formerly of Canada Land, formerly of the National Post, and his first story with Global News, he has this tweet that Hamish Marshall, Andrew Scheer's campaign manager, is listed as a director of Rebel Media. I felt red to the face because, you know, Canada Land's core competency is not covering politics, though we do have a politics show. We invited all of the conservative candidates onto Commons, but that was before Andrew Scheer announced his candidacy. We completely missed the boat with Scheer. But our core competency is covering media, and we missed that completely. And kudos to Sean Craig for catching it, but he caught it after the guy won. Right. I mean, in the media's defense, there were, what, a huge number of candidates that were running in this election. And so I think part of it is just this sort of sense of this huge pool. Where do you put your resources? Who's relevant? uh, Who's interesting? 
And I think Kevin O'Leary and Kelly Leach both played into this kind of exciting narrative that's happening in the U.S. and in France. And I'm not saying exciting in a way that I'm endorsing it, but there does seem to be this shift happening where conservatism is becoming less about religious values and moral values and more about xenophobia and white supremacy, right? And nationalism, if uh, white supremacy is not necessarily part of what Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary were espousing, certainly a sort of nationalist idea. And so I think Canada, God knows why, Canadians seem to be really interested, or Canadian media seems to be really interested in seeing if we can match these other global phenomena, these other global stories, when I guess social conservatism still is a relatively big deal here. You know, Andrew Scheer was quiet. He was not as exciting as someone like Brad Trost, which kind of makes sense, which is why he might have managed to pull out the votes of people who found him a decent next choice. So was the media played? Maybe, but I don't know. Like, why would we focus on the most milquetoast people? No disrespect to Andrew Scheer. I'm sure he's a really thrilling guy. Well, I, I think I think you kind of hit it. And I'm not really like, I don't think he played us. Like, I think it would be overly crazy and conspiratorial and, and paranoid to think that this was some crazy rebel media plot no. to slip in a dimpled smirking face of social conservatism under the radar of these more rabid polarizing figures. I mean, that's what happened. But I don't think that anyone had that as like as their plot. That would be nutty to think that was the plan. But I think it would also be naive to think that there's no relevance to the fact that rebel media has this connection. I mean, it, there is like a, a, a Steve Bannon parallel and you look at Sheer, and I'm reading about Anna now and it is incorrect to say the media didn't cover him. He was profiled. I don't think he was vetted, okay. but he was profiled by all major media. I'm finding out now. And this is more about my, maybe I was more attracted to these crazy figures and I ignored this like long read by Althea Raj, which was, which was I think a, a terrific piece, which I've since read. And so now I know, now that he's the leader of the conservative party, now I know that he wants to give parents a $4,000 subsidy to send their kids to private school. Now I know that he has a perfect anti-abortion voting record, that he has voted against extending Human Rights Act to the transgendered, that he wants to withhold funds to universities that limit free speech, by what metric I don't know. Now I know that he has expressed, it seems, more concern about Islamophobia as it pertains to people who are falsely accused of being Islamophobes when in fact they're just critical of radical Islam. He's more concerned about that side of Islamophobia than the kind that gets people killed in mosques. He wants to axe the CBC's news division. And he has promised to go duck hunting with Faith Goldie. Now I know all of these things. Like you, you hit the nail on the head, Katie, because like, what's the Canadian version of Trump? Oh, it's Kelly Leach. What's the Canadian version of Trump? Oh, it's Kevin O'Leary. And in fact, the Canadian version would be a chubby-cheeked, smirking, pleasant, inoffensive guy who doesn't say crazy polarizing things, but who in fact stands for them. Right. Or the Canadian version of Trump does not exist, that we still are on the George Bush era. Yeah, this concern we had with with, uh, with Bernier, because he did a little bit of dog whistling to the Reddit MRAs with the red pill thing. The fact of the matter is that like a true libertarian would take no stand on what Canadian values are or on religion. Like libertarians would not muck around in those things. And the real virulent xenophobic side, yes, Kelly Leach embodied that, but she never really had a chance. I mean, she was a bizarro candidate. This guy was the guy who could create a very big tent that seems to be inclusive of everybody among those nutsos and then beyond. Right. I mean, when you talk about this idea of trying to find an American story, we're trying to find our Donald Trump over here in Nova Scotia. We just had an election where very much a lot of the conversation around the NDP was comparing the leader, Gary Burrell, to Bernie Sanders. 
And that's the same sort of idea of like, okay, this major thing has happened in the United States. A rogue democratic socialist has been trying to change the Democratic Party from within. What's our version? And the fact is, respectfully, Mr. Burrell was not a Bernie Sanders for our time. He was not incredibly concise. The NDP picked up a couple of seats, but this was not a charismatic Brooklyn slash Vermont Jew taking over the nation with a crazy idea. I don't know why it is that we don't think we're interesting enough and that we need to find parallels with American stories, but it keeps happening. Yeah. Tell me more about about the election. I mean, besides trying to fit it into the Bernie Sanders narrative, what played out? And I think one thing that I'm wondering with the conservative race, with Nova Scotia and with BC, is if part of this, like you've got the one side of it of we're all in the shadow of this American narrative and trying to make our narrative compatible with it or echo it in some way. And on the other hand, we just don't have resources. And I wonder how much of this is just about us not having the resources to adequately cover things and and vet candidates. I mean, when you talk about a lack of resources, Nova Scotia is kind of the perfect example of that, right? Our provincial paper, the staff for our provincial paper are still on strike. And that means that there is not sort of like a daily paper record with a huge newsroom that has the resources to be going out and picking up those stories. CBC, The Coast, the Strike Paper Local Express all sort of did work on this, but there is always a loss when you don't have a paper of record that can sort of bring in really strong daily coverage from multiple people every single day. There was a lot of coverage of social media snafus. There was an NDP candidate who was uh, asked to leave because of some uh, social media issues. There was a conservative candidate and there was a liberal candidate, or I guess two conservative candidates. I think one of the things that sort of came to my mind when I kept seeing media coverage about tweets or Facebook posts was that this coverage is easy, right? You are getting the opportunity to say that someone is maybe a bad person or question their character without necessarily having to do loads of interviews, find out about how they run their business, find out about how they work, about their relationships, that kind of thing. And so to the credit of the public, I don't think many of these social media stories tended to really play. Like, I don't think people tended to get really excited about it. Like the parties obviously got excited about the opportunity to throw muck at each other. But it just kind of concerns me that we're going to be seeing more and more of these social media stories because they're easy for reporters to write, but they're not necessarily that substantive. Yeah. I mean, thinking about like in BC where this uh, flare up between Christy Clark and a, and a voter and like a variety store, or grocery store or something became like a hashtag story that got tons of play. And, you know, it's like a forest for the trees thing. And and then like this nail biter of an election and then Global and the Globe and Mail still have stories up saying that Christy Clark won a minority government. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, the NDP and the Greens have just announced a deal. It looks like they're going to form the government. I know Christy Clark is not going to step down, but I feel like I am struggling to just get the, the information here. Like, are those stories not taken down because there's some aspect to which they are correct or were correct? Or, or is it, are they just left up because no one's bothered yet? There, there's just like some basics here that uh, either I'm failing to grasp or it's failing to be communicated. The fact that the CBC built Kevin O'Leary from nothing into this TV bad guy who was in a position to be the front runner, and then he drops out, obviously using the entire process as a promotional tool for his business, which is just about self-promotion. And then the CBC has him back on the air 
as a commentator on a, the night of the of the uh, results of the C- CBC leadership was baffling to me. And kudos to Tom Harrington of the CBC for saying so, because it's hard to criticize the CBC when you work for the CBC. But those types of stories are arguably much less important than simply knowing who these candidates are. I mean, I think that the fact is that knowing who candidates are really takes work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of digging. And in the case of, for example, these Nova Scotia stories around social media, I don't recall ever hearing where these stories came from, if they came from opposition researchers, if they came from the reporters' work themselves. And so that's another factor, is that as reporters become more and more overworked, we're more and more dependent on opposition researchers or on PR people. And so if we're getting stories from those folks, then they're going to be the easy stories that make each other look bad. They're not going to be in-depth character analysis. That's a terrific point because the people who have the resources are the interested parties themselves, the parties and those funding them. And you've got all this whole new barrage of shady players or interested party players, lobbyists, sites that are of arguable journalistic mission that are feeding into the news cycle all of the gotchas that they're able to dig up or create. And then we're in a position where what are we going to do but run it? I mean, it's what people are interested in. And it's a, it's, it's a gimme. It's right there for us to take. I want to throw out there before we like just quickly before we switch that there was like some substantial coverage of the Nova Scotia election. You know, one major issue was that Kylie Harris, a communications officer for the Nova Scotia Liberals, who had been a domestic abuser, was hired again, was a communications officer. He was working on this campaign. Media called him out on it, said, what are you doing to uh, the premier, Stephen McNeil? The liberal line was that everyone deserves a second chance, you know? And then shortly after, there was a social media issue where someone wrote a bad tweet and they were asked to leave. And so there is this thing where... The parties themselves seem to have decided that social media is even more important than like principles or hiring or any of this. Kylie Harris ultimately ended up leaving. But I do think that there is a weird question about what we're prioritizing, not only as members of the media, but as people who consume media and are thinking about how to best play it. Katie, let's move on to do this episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day to day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. ...noted where we note things duly. Can I note something duly? Please. It's just the story that everybody should read, and I'm not going to say anything about it except the headline and the byline, because it is the best combination of a headline and byline that I can recall. And here it is from the Vancouver Sun. Murder plot against reporter Kim Bolin revealed at UN gang trial by Kim Bolin. Go read it now. Just like, how perfect is that? I don't mean to make, I mean, it's obviously a hugely traumatic thing to cover your own. Terrifying. Yeah, but my God, murder plot against me, story by me. Okay. Before we duly note onto the next thing, I mean, I think this is a pretty big deal. First of all, the idea of being in a courtroom and hearing your own name being associated with a murder plot from the guys that you report on is terrifying. But I can't help but think about some of the other recent issues of violence against uh, reporters, not to like minimize what Kim Bolin uh, experienced, but like Ben Jacobs, the British Guardian reporter, was just in Montana asking U.S. House of Representatives elect, who has since won some questions, ends up get getting beaten. Right. Body slammed. Body and, and slammed punched, and yeah. punched. And Fox News was <laughs> people from Fox News was the ones saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't be beating up a reporter like moment of reporter solidarity. And I can't help but think like this may happen more and more. Of course. Yeah. I mean, all of this animosity that is being whipped up against journalists, the minimized role and power of journalists, the increased presence of journalists who don't have the backing of like, oh, you're from the New York Times, who seem like you can fuck with them. Right. All of this is adding up to a steady trickle of stories of journalists getting hurt, threatened by law enforcement, by the people they cover. This isn't coincidence that, that we're seeing more and more of these stories. Absolutely. And by the way, a lot of people said, oh my God, I want to hear this Kimbolan talk about this on Canada Land. I have asked her onto the show. She's bowing out now. I think that, you know, she's an old school reporter who doesn't want to be the focus of things. And then I'm, I'm thinking that the impact on her family and those who care about her, like I respect and understand that decision, though I, I definitely would love to talk with her just about covering crime if she's ever interested in that. I am curious about what sort of role, like she wrote that the Police had warned her that there would be a threat uttered. But what role do police have in terms of protecting journalists? And I mean, I also acknowledge we could be tough cookies to protect. Like if they had come to her and straight up been like, hey, people have a threat on your life, she might be like, do, 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 start typing it, right? I don't know. I found maybe it was just a short, tight story and it wasn't a major feature, but I was confused about like what role did the police play in terms of making sure that she was safe? And I think those are questions that have still remained unanswered. Yeah. Look, I want to hear this whole thing from the beginning to the end about this UN gang and, and cartel links, but maybe Kim will write a book about this one day. Doing noted. I am currently working on a bit of coverage of two trials that are happening in Nova Scotia right now. Simultaneously, we've got murder trial of Taylor Sampson, who was allegedly killed by William Sanderson, a Dalhousie student, was 
looking forward to med school, and both of them were dealing large amounts of drugs. And this case has just been covered daily intensely by colleagues who I really respect at CTV, Global, Metro, just like day-by-day coverage. And Nova Scotians seem really invested. They just don't seem to understand how these two college students could have been embroiled in something so grisly, allegedly. And then down the hall, I've also been looking at a trial of Jimmy Melvin Jr., the second member of a second generation of a uh, known crime and drug family, I guess. The Melvin family is accused of killing Terry Marriott Jr., also second generation. The intergenerational rivalry and beef of these two families has been sort of documented by many media outlets, uh, especially Vice. And it's a lot quieter in that courtroom. You know, there's a lot of family members and people who know the Melvins and the Marriott's. There is another reporter from Local Express and another reporter from CBC, but certainly uh, less intensity in terms of the coverage. And I just sort of found that interesting in terms of whose stories do we value? And like, what is it about sort of like, oh, like these kids were in college that seems to get people's attention. We're talking about crime stories in terms of you were talking about Vancouver uh, and Kim Bolin. And in general, I think that crime stories sometimes get a bad rap. You talked about this on the last Canada Land. But I think also we don't always talk about which crime stories get attention and why. So I've just been thinking about that a lot lately. I don't have an answer. That sounds fascinating. We'll throw some links up on the show notes. Duly noted. Katie, I know that you are far from Toronto and that we're not the center of the universe, but every now and then uh, something in the Toronto press might be of interest to people elsewhere. Did you happen to catch this Toronto Life story titled, We Bought a Crack House? You mean the modern day Shakespeare piece? You mean the Romeo and Juliet of our times? (laughs) Maybe you could try to summarize this piece for our listeners. All right. This is a story of a family that owned a condo and wanted to upsize. So they fell in love with a house. That house actually was a two-bedroom rat trap. And they made the mistake of buying that on a whim. I think this, honestly, I think this is part people are glossing over. They bought a house, a two-bedroom rat trap on a whim. It was a mistake. So what they do is they sell the house, move back into the condo, and then they buy a three-bedroom rooming house in Parkdale on a whim again. Like, I mean, fool me once, shame on me, but like, (laughs) they did this twice. So anyway, this family decides they are going to buy a beautiful old house, the Grand Dame. I'm assuming it's the biggest house on the block, judging by its name, but I could be totally wrong. Completely do a gut reno and kick out the people who are currently living there, who are renting. And um, their trials and tribulations are many. They completely underestimate the cost of a renovation in a city where renovations are happening all the time. And this is very much a contractor's market. I'm not an expert, but... I think that's common knowledge, right? And at some point, we're supposed to feel bad for their outrageous hubris and the fact that they spent four years having a really hard time renovating their house because they made a lot of poor decisions. Does that sum it up for you? I think you got it. Let me try to provide a little of context both before and after the piece. I mean, you talk about Parkdale. This is a Toronto neighborhood that is like what you call a mixed-use neighborhood. All kinds of people live there. It is 
often pointed to as an example of how gentrification can work. It can work. That's right. You, you're not necessarily pushing people out that we can all coexist, but there are these beautiful old homes that also it's a real what's your lens. On the one hand, these rooming houses are one of the last affordable housing options. On the other hand, they are destitute. There are, there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of crime in Parkdale. The piece itself is this salvo in Toronto life in the midst of like right now, there are violent confrontations on the streets of Parkdale between renters and landlords. There are rent strikes happening in Parkdale right now. There's like the war of Parkdale and into this heightened atmosphere where people are being kicked out of their homes and dispossessed and, and gentrification is starting to not work in Parkdale comes Toronto life. Like the, the story, it is gobsmacking. The way that Catherine Gian talks about her situation with just no compassion or insight or self-reflection, she describes herself as we were cash strapped. We didn't even own a car. They <laughs> owned three properties. <laughs> she talked she, offhand. She mentions that, oh yeah, we offloaded our, our rat trap of a house on somebody else. And then she goes on to just list this litany of stupidities that she, like uh, Hubris is exactly right. They decide that they want to save money by doing much of the work themselves and picking a cheap contractor. Like, you don't cheap out on a contractor. They don't want to go market rate, so they pick a guy whose best references, the references that he provides them, are, as she puts it, neither glowing nor offensive or something like that. This is how she describes the guy. Uh, they're looking for contractors. That nothing's cheap enough. And then a man pulled up on his bicycle. He was in his 50s, wore jean cutoffs, a rumpled hat. He was missing a few key teeth and didn't like wearing socks or, as he later informed us, underwear. She then explains that they hired him. And, and there's parts of it that are like poetry. They're like from an Edward Gorey. It's beautiful. Like, the, the sentence, the bathtub was filled with a mysterious black liquid, the sight of which caused our son, Oliver, to start bawling. And the kicker, uh, I think Ishmael Darrow said this is a beautiful hate read or something. And it is. It's just, you read this thing, you get to the end. And after this, like these bumbling people who make every mistake with vast sums of money and are taken by opportunists and swindlers while they themselves are trying to exploit at the end, she says, the last few years have been nerve wracking, but a renovated semi down the street, once owned by the same couple who sold us our house, just went for $2.1 million. So for now, things look okay. And it's the most beautiful punchline that despite everything, they're going to make a fortune mm. on this house. To provide the context for after the piece came out, it went mega viral and basically is sparking a class war in Toronto right now, at least on Twitter. <laughs> like people are livid over this thing. They are just boiling with rage at Toronto life. Like, like how brain dead and context blind can you be? There are a lot of people who are just, who are, who are feeling that Toronto life has just completely misread the temperature. And I want to offer my take on what Toronto life has done here. Okay. But before you do, I just want to point out that yes, is it a little tasteless and uh, weird middle upper class homeowner aspiration porn about how you too can gentrify a neighborhood? Yes, but I have been a fan of Toronto Life. I started reading Toronto Life mostly for nostalgia purposes when I moved to Halifax for college. And um, it's never not been like that. You know, like that was my favorite part was how out of touch it was. So I do think it's kind of this weird thing of, you're upset that Toronto life is out of touch now? Like, where have you been? Why would you assume that I would be upset? Not you personally, <laughs> but just... In response to the outrage, I feel similarly to you. I would go further. 
This is a beautiful, this article, I love that you can read this article in Toronto Life as a wicked piece of satire. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've written for Toronto Life and I know how they, like there are like a dozen editors worked on this thing and they polished this piece and made the author of it the most contemptible straw man stand in for Toronto gentrification. Just like, oh, get these crackheads out of my house and I sold a rat house to somebody else. And just like, it's, there are sentences in there that I feel like they knew exactly what they were doing. They wound us up beautifully. And in, in fact, it's almost like a socially progressive piece. I'm, I'm going to go there. Well, because I feel like, what's Toronto Life going to do? They're going to actually like write like a serious minded piece about gentrification in Parkdale and the need for affordable. Like, they'll do that. It'll probably be on their website, not in the magazine, and no one will read it. This is beautiful. They're going to take to the streets and burn down Parkdale because of this article. And I think that Toronto Life has has done, no, they're not going to do that and that wouldn't be good, but they've done an incredible service and they have raised the issue of class in a way that Toronto desperately needs to encounter, but in a, you know, sensationalistic and violent and angry way. But, you know, I don't know what to tell you. It's peak Toronto Life. It's them doing what they do as as well as they've ever done it. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed reading every sentence of this piece. So are you saying that Toronto Life will be lining people up against the wall? I just can't tell what side they're on. I know what side they're on. But, you know, I I feel like, you know, they they know that they need to break out of their like Rosedale readership if they're going to survive. And they have succeeded in getting everybody to read their content for the worst possible reasons. Yeah, I love your take. And I, I see myself on so many sides of this. You know, it's like, I think that's truly the sign of great art is that you can interpret it in so many different ways, you know, uh, like an E.E. E. Cummings poem or a Salvador Dali painting. This should just be framed and put in a museum. But while I definitely like your take on this, I think there's another side, which is like, Toronto Life has really kicked ass recently. I uh, wrote a great piece on the Don Jail and... Is it going to be harder for a major Toronto readership to take it seriously and read it regularly, other than one hate read, if they don't see themselves represented in it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think obviously New York Magazine is their model for how they do things. There are some things in Toronto Life that genuinely get me livid and that I don't enjoy, ironically, as I maybe did this piece. Like, mm. a lot of their pieces, Michael Bryant and on, on uh, Sammy Yatim, like, a lot of their stories were basically could be summed up into, oh, power was right after all. And it's just mm. buttressing the elites of Toronto in a way that I find really disgusting for them going to bat in that way for people who don't deserve it. And, and uh, you know, in the Yatim case, and I, I would argue the Bryant case... The facts didn't bear it out at all. They didn't need to do that. Mm. Which is interesting when you compare it to something like New York Magazine, which definitely like enjoys the glamour, but does not tend to really jump onto the side of power in the same way. No, that's right. It's snarky and it's mean to power while it also is a glossy service journalism magazine that is about where to eat and in a sense celebrating wealth and power. So like New York Magazine, I think, is the aspirational magazine. Toronto Life, I don't like when it's it can't decide if it's worshipping power and money or like, and then here's a little social justice on the side. Anyhow, I felt that this piece, like this should be like their lighthouse piece. Like this is like, go forward from this. It engages with all of the issues while giving you the house porn. And I wouldn't be surprised if that couple uses this piece to flip their fucking house. <laughs> Not surprised at all. It ends with the beautiful shots of their soaker tub and all that shit. 
it, it checks off all the boxes. So, you know, I, look, I, I want to give credit where it's due. That's all. I wonder how much of this is also related. And we were just talking about aspirational, other aspirational magazines like New York. I have not looked at St. Joseph Media's finances or anything like that. But generally, like, it's my understanding that aspirational advertising and aspirational brands tend to do well, which is kind of a bummer because I feel like Toronto could really use like a general interest magazine that is like in the vein of something like the Atlantic or just like taking on some of these issues. And I can't really think of another place than Toronto life that would step up to that. So it's kind of like a trap. Well, Canada could use a a website or a publication like that. So let's put that out there. Cool. Katie, that is your Canada land shortcuts. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jesse. Everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them. I respond when I can. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Katie Toth, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at cat underscore Toth. That's cat with a K. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show is produced by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. 